0: Good day and welcome to Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan Podcast. I'm Nancy Deringer, Communications Director for the Research Council, and in this podcast, we look at Michigan through a policy lens. Our discussions here are informed by our 102 years of experience doing nonpartisan, fact-based research on policy issues. We hope this podcast will serve as another way for the public to access our work, which is as always free and available to all at our website crcmich.org. Today, my guest is council researcher Tim Mischling, who once again has undertaken an explanation of Healthy Michigan, which is known un- informally to most of you probably as the state's expansion of Medicaid. Tim's here to talk about some of the changes to Healthy Michigan as the state seeks to fit this federal program to a Michigan model. So welcome, Tim. Thank you. You wrote in a recent blog post at crcmich.org that the state has begun moving individuals off of the Healthy Michigan program and into marketplace health plans. Tell us why this is happening.
1: Sure. So this has to do with the waivers that Michigan used to expand its Medicaid program under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Medicaid encourages innovation at the state level, and so these waivers are used to allow states to waive federal program rules and structures and allow the states to test new approaches uh, for improving their programs and delivering better health insurance uh, through Medicaid. Michigan used uh, waivers to expand its Medicaid program uh, that included features like cost sharing um, and a healthy behavior incentive program, uh, as well as a marketplace option. So the marketplace option applies to healthy Michigan plan beneficiaries with incomes above 100% of the federal poverty level who enrolled in a Medicaid health plan for 12 consecutive months or more and didn't complete uh, healthy behavior, uh, as well as only the ones who are not considered medically frail or exempt from any cost sharing. So I think in this case option is misleading when you say marketplace option because for the individuals that failed to complete a health risk assessment and comply with selected healthy behaviors, uh, they're automatically moved off of a Medicaid health plan and onto a commercial health plan.
0: Okay. So I looked at one of these health risk assessments that the state put together. It's available on the state's website and it looks fairly simple there are questions there about diet exercise smoking drinking all that stuff that you would expect there are only a couple that hint at the reason most medicaid recipients are on medicaid in the first place which is because they're poor and yet poverty is tied to many of these behaviors especially ones like smoking which is rapidly becoming a class marker in our society can you expand on that a little
1: Yeah, so it's a fairly simple process, assuming, of course, that you're literate and organized and have access to a primary care provider who can complete the process with you, as that's a required component. Um, In terms of smoking, uh, the World Health Organization calls it a vicious circle through which tobacco exacerbates poverty, and poverty is also associated with higher prevalence of tobacco use. There are several studies from different parts of the world that have shown that smoking and other forms of tobacco use are much higher among the poor.
0: You unearthed some interesting statistics about the prevalence of cigarette smoking in Michigan,
1: Why don't you run down a couple of these county numbers for me? Sure. So the highest prevalence of smoking that we see in Michigan, according to 2017 county health rankings, is in Wayne County. And that's a prevalence of 22.6%. Um, And the second highest prevalence is then in Isabella County at 22%. um, And we see 21.7 in Genesee and 21.6 in Chippewa.
0: Okay. So, so, you know, right around one in five. In in
1: those counties, yeah. And and I think it's important when you look at that cross-section of the highest counties, we've got some urban counties and some rural counties. There's not a lot that all four have in common other than higher rates of poverty and lower rates of educational attainment. Sure. Okay. So some of the best counties then we would see would be in Oakland County or Leelanau County or Livingston County, Mm -hmm. uh, which are very different populations.
0: And it's down for those numbers. It's, it's down around what? 15%? Uh,
1: 14, 15% in in those areas.
0: You also found some data that showed how poverty and education and smoking are related as well. And that was some really interesting stuff. So why don't you kind of run down through adults without a high school diploma up through a graduate degree and how those numbers drop with each each level of, of education
1: sure so beyond the county level data i think when you dig in you realize that you know counties are not homogenous units and there there's a lot of variation within them and so when we look at data um, on smoking prevalence based on educational attainment you find out that you know adults with a high school diploma uh, are around 19.7% smokers and That's close to the national average. That's close to the prevalence that we see in a lot of counties. But if you look at folks with a GED certificate, uh, that prevalence is up at 40.6%.
0: That's amazing.
1: That's a high difference. And then for adults with an undergraduate degree, uh, it's 7.7%. And adults with a graduate degree, 4.5%.
0: Right. So the better educated you are, the less likely you are to smoke.
1: Yeah. And it's a very direct inverse relationship between prevalence of smoking and educational
0: Exactly. And I bet if we really dug into it, although we're not going to do that right now, you would find the same correlation between education, poverty and obesity. But let's leave that alone for now. Um, You write in your blog that uh, programs constructed with the intention of coercing participants into responsible behavior may be doomed to fail if they take a one size fits all approach that does not acknowledge the underlying reasons Behaviors may differ among individuals and groups. Now, there's a term of art in health policy and healthcare discussions: social determinants of health. Why don't you explain what that is?
1: Sure. Uh, so that's really what I sound like when I write, huh? <laughs> um, social determinants of health. I think is a really important concept, and to an extent, that's what we're already talking about uh, with with the smoking data we were looking at. Um, the in In short, the social determinants of health are conditions and people's surroundings that affect a wide range of health, functioning, and quality of life outcomes and risks. So what we mean by that is essential resources like safe housing or available food, uh, economic conditions. So as you mentioned, poverty um, and the types of stresses that accompany poverty, um, the quality of education and job training that people have, the... Public safety in their communities, exposure to violence and crime, dramatically affect people's health and well-being. Uh, the availability of social supports and community resources, whether that's a family structure or public spaces or churches and places of worship, uh, social norms, access to healthcare, language, literacy, culture—all of these things really affect how healthy we are.
0: Mm-hmm. If um- if you've been to the doctor recently and filled out a questionnaire where they ask, um, do you feel safe at home? That's They're trying to get to the bottom of some of these questions.
1: Yeah. And and medicine and, and clinical practitioners are starting to realize that uh, there are things that don't show up in biomarkers necessarily that directly are affecting people's health when they exactly. come in. Okay. So as I said, these factors explain a lot. uh, And when you're addressing the health of both individuals and communities, social factors um, are as linked to mortality as are the behavioral and pathophysiological ones. And Mm -hmm. so it's really important to consider. uh, And they're often inextricably linked with behavioral factors as well, such as smoking. And so you see that individuals with Lower educational attainment um, have a lot of exposures to uh, tobacco, to environmental hazards, um, and greater susceptibility to health risks. Why exactly that is isn't clear. Uh, it's hard to establish a direct causal relationship as opposed to some underlying factor that may predispose someone to be a smoker and to take other risks or have other behavioral factors. So that, that's a complex question.
0: Mm-hmm. As you say here, they call it poor health for a reason. They do
1: call it poor health for a reason. <laughs> okay.
0: okay. But getting people to quit smoking, getting back to our, our Medicaid discussion, getting people to quit smoking or or to lose weight is a lot harder than just telling them to do so, as anyone who's ever tried either can tell you. Is there any evidence from other states that this carrot and stick approach will work to actually reduce health care spending among lower income people or people covered by medicaid expansion
1: so in terms of the the carrot stick approach that we're talking about at the moment these are still new things and so i don't think there are enough data available to really adequately evaluate them but in terms of a more general discussion i think the carrot stick approach is rarely successful with these types of issues so you can declare war on obesity, but that makes, I think, a few key mistakes in the way you conceptualize the problem. Uh, saying it's a war frames obesity. Like it's a, you know, the obese or a militant domestic threat, even though few obese people really, you know, want to be that way. Exactly. Um, and the other problem is that when you look at a carrot stick approach, you're attending to factors that are internal to individuals. So you're looking for the right balance of incentives and disincentives to manage their behavior and, and coerce them into the behaviors that you want them to do. That makes the assumption that the behaviors that they're engaging in are purely rational, internal, and individual, uh, and that they exist in a vacuum.
0: And they're absolutely not.
1: They absolutely are not. Especially
0: them. when we get to food and obesity. I yeah. mean, there's that's... Well... I mean, I don't. I don't need to tell anybody this that that food is wrapped up in so much more than uh, than rational <laughs> rational thought.
1: No, it, absolutely. And it's in food is cultural, right. and food is comfort and food is
0: love uh, food is so (laughs) many things that are other than nutrition if
1: you're running from one job to the next you may not have time to you know sit down for some healthy oat cuisine
0: sure exactly And certain
1: communities don't have uh you know quinoa kale salads on order for the cheap
0: no absolutely not and 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 you know it's it's also it's very much a, a factor of how you were raised. If you were raised to eat certain types of of food, you're going to you're going to continue to do that as an adult most
1: likely. Yeah, I think as soon as you look at the data and see how closely obesity tracks with things like income, education level, race, neighborhood characteristics, it's really hard to pretend that it's just an individual level problem. So a study I was reading uh, by Swedish researchers in the Journal of Therapeutic Advances in Gastroenterology wrote that obesity is not a surprising end result in our obesogenic environment, so maybe it should even be seen as a normal reaction. It's been said that to ask why obesity has become so prevalent is to ask the wrong question. Rather, the question should be, why are there any lean people around at all? And with you know processed foods and right. neighborhoods that are no longer walkable uh concerns of safety um, we eat more, we exercise less, we have less need to uh, those things are hard to overcome. And so, you know, when you look at like the Affordable Care Act, putting calories on menus at fast food restaurants gives people a clear indication and and helps them make decisions when they might not be thinking about that. And I know for me personally, when I go down the street to get lunch and I see that brownie Sunday shake and it sounds really good, once I see that it's 1200 calories, I make a different, healthier choice. <laughs> and so those types of environmental factors, you know, we can, we can alter alter behavior and in in that way, in a way that's not invasive and that isn't punitive and that encourages people to, to make better choices.
0: There are some not insubstantial costs to the state associated with moving these individuals off of Healthy Michigan and into these private plans too, correct?
1: Yeah. So getting back to the the marketplace option, um, an estimate I heard recently. So people have just started getting letters recently and the move to marketplace plans Started this month with the first cohort of people, uh, which was thirteen thousand five hundred fifty, who were mailed letters, and some have since completed their health risk assessments to remain in the Healthy Michigan plan. But if all of those people had been moved over to marketplace insurance plans, the cost to the state uh, was almost nine million to make that shift.
0: Huh. So all they had to do to stay on Healthy Michigan then is to get in touch with their primary care physician. Fill out one of these forms and have a sit down with the doctor.
1: Yeah, you you fill out so you have to fill out an initial assessment um, looking at whether or not you're engaged in healthy behaviors, if there are health concerns such as various chronic conditions or or other behaviors, and then you can elect to either maintain behaviors that you're already doing if you if you are a fairly healthy person or you can select ones to work on and then you have to, you know, have that certified with your physician that you're working on those as well.
0: Okay. So, to sum up it, it sounds as though the health risk assessments being tied to continued eligibility for Medicaid is yet another of those things that does better in theory than in practice perhaps.
1: So, yeah, it sounds like a really good idea in theory, um, but in practice it had some problems. And in the analysis that the Research Council did of Healthy Michigan Plan last year, we found that in the early you know rollout of this, there wasn't a lot of compliance. And since then, through communication and promotion, most people are completing these things now. And so that's good. Um, why there are still some people not doing it, um, I wouldn't want to hazard a guess at this point. It can, you know, have to do with literacy. It can have to do with some people just not understanding how it works, not having access to a primary care physician, uh, or maybe just not wanting to be told what to do. And so it's it's hard to really say for sure why we still have these these cohorts of people that haven't completed this this behavior. Um, but in terms of effectiveness of actually making people healthy um it's a nice idea uh i think it would be very optimistic to think that this is going to overcome all of the social and environmental factors that that make us unhealthy and that really goes beyond the the medicaid program and and applies to really everyone
0: right in michigan it's almost like a a, a bumper sticker explanation of um a very, very, very complex problem.
1: So, right. Yeah, And so I think when, when we look at a program like Medicaid that at its core is a health program, policies should be designed to improve health. And Medicaid doesn't just have to pay for health services. It can take an active role in making people healthier. But as it does that, I, I think half measures are, I don't want to say a waste of time, but insufficient to to. Surmount the challenges that we have in making our population healthier
0: right, and it 's like it 's like with education, you have to start very early, and there have been i understand there have been some truly heroic efforts going on in some communities, not necessarily in Michigan, with you know bringing healthier food into you know poorer neighborhoods, making it easier to get, making it um, you know, cooking classes, I mean, all, all sorts of things that, that can be done, but have to be done really at the grassroots level to get wide adoption.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the relationship between an individual and their doctor and, and getting that high quality clinical care is really important. But we're finally starting to recognize that health goes beyond the individual level and so the social determinants of health are really important to consider and as someone with a public health background i'm i'm gratified to see that we're paying more attention to things we can do at the community level to save everyone as opposed to saving one person at a time exactly
0: okay well thanks tim that was a very um enlightening conversation Uh, That will do it for this edition of Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. Remember, the council operates as a public resource, and all of our papers, along with blogs, op-eds, and other resources, are available for download on our website, crcmich.org. We operate as a nonprofit through the generosity of Michigan's corporations, foundations, and individuals like you. If you'd like to make a donation, go to our website, crcmich.org, and click on the contribution button on the homepage. We also welcome feedback, which you can send via email to CRCMish at crcmish.org. I'm Nancy Derringer, and until next time, I leave you with this observation by our founding president, Lent Upson. The right to criticize government is also an obligation to know what you're talking about. Until next time, thanks for listening.